The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. All right, um, talking about uh, the Olivet, um, not the Olivet, the um, Upper Room Discourse, John 14, 25, and 26. And uh, as I was saying, you need to do justice to the uh, specific historical setting in which these words are given. At the end of chapter 13, it is clear that uh, there's a great deal of... um, uh, distress in the hearts of the disciples because Jesus is talking about leaving them. And in a sense, uh, beginning with chapter 14, you have Jesus' response to that concern. And the response is, you need not uh, be troubled. Why, why don't they need to be troubled if Jesus is leaving them? Well, you know, fundamentally because the Holy Spirit will be, uh, he'll come back, you see, in, in the, the person of the Spirit and uh, the Spirit will uh, bring to fruition what He has taught them. But notice especially, verse 25, These things I, I have spoken to you while I was with you. These things I have spoken to you while I was with you. That's the historical framework that I think we need to keep in mind. And then when He says, But, but the parakletos, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things, and humas. he will remind you of the things which I said to you. Now later in the, um, in the discourse, in chapter 16, you have um, these remarkable words, um, uh, not only should you not be distressed that I'm leaving, in fact at the end of chapter 14 it says you ought to be happy, why? Because it is to your advantage that I leave you. It is to your benefit. Uh, That's um, uh, chapter 16, verse 6. Because if I do not go away, the parakletos will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And um, then very important, verse 12. I still have many things to say to you. Now, again, you have to think of the historical context here. I've taught you many things while I was with you, but there are many others that I need to say to you. But you are not able, bastatsein, Arti, you're not yet able to bear them. Why? Well, I think basically because Jesus hasn't yet died and, and been raised, and they don't have you know, the wherewithal to make sense of uh, what Jesus needs to reveal to them. But when he comes, the Spirit of Truth, O de geise humas ente aletheia pasi, he will lead you into all truth. For he does not speak of himself or whatever he hears and so on. Now, again, I think you really need to do justice to the distinctive apostolic promise that, that we're dealing with here. I have many more things to tell you, 
You cannot bear them now, but the Holy Spirit will lead you into the whole truth. Now, to my mind, that is primarily a promise of apostolic revelation. Uh, and so that when you read the books of the New Testament, the Gospels, and in particular the Epistles and so on, you have the, the final stage of revelation, if you will, that Christ brings to his apostles through the Parakletos, through the Holy Spirit. Now you have to put all this now, link all everything that I've said so far, you see. You have the Old Testament conception of thus says the Lord. And everybody agrees, by the way, you know, even the most radical scholars will agree that in the Jewish setting into which Jesus came and in, 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 out of which the early church grew, that was a given. People accepted the, the, the notion of, of a canon in the sense of here are these authoritative documents where God has spoken. That was a given. But now the claim being made is that Jesus brings all of that to completion, to finality, and that that final revelation comes through the apostles whom he appointed to speak in his name. Therefore, you are not surprised that the Old Testament and the gospel message are placed on the same level. That is, we're not talking about different categories of, uh, of inspiration or, or uh, uh, priority or something like that. They, they are correlative. Already mentioned chapter 1 of Hebrews. But also in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, you have a very, very important statement uh, where the, uh, the author says, if uh, you know, the law given by angels was uh, firm so that people who violated were punished, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation that it was given to us not by angels, but by Jesus? Now remember in chapter 1, he has made the point, who is greater, you see? Someone who has the name of angels or someone who has the name of son? And having established that superiority of Christ, then he says, so then if the law that was given by angels, you see, was, was strict and firm so that the, any violations were punished, how shall we escape if we neglect this salvation given to us by the Lord and announced to us by his apostles, by those who heard him? So, so there is again that correlation between the Old Testament and the gospel message. Or in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 11 and 12, uh, where uh, Peter makes the point that um, the prophets of the Old Testament saw the sufferings of Christ and the glories that should follow. And uh, these things were being spoken for our benefit, and then it, they have been brought to you by the, by the gospel uh, that, that you have heard. Again, that correlation in terms of continuity and fulfillment. Or in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 2, where uh, Peter makes the point that um, I want to remind you of the things, and, and look at the way in which um, uh, this is put. Uh, chapter 3, verse 2, to remind you of the things of the things or the words spoken, who ton hagion propheton by the holy prophets, kai teiston apostolon humonen toles, and the commandment 
of the apostles, uh, of, of your apostles to the Lord and Savior. So he correlates the, the holy prophets with the commandment of the Lord that has come to us by the apostles. The same plane. Therefore, you're also not totally surprised that, say, in 1 Timothy chapter, one, chapter 5, verse 18, 1 Timothy 5, verse 18, you have a New Testament text cited under the rubric, hey, graphe, the scripture. Or, again, 2 Peter 3.16, about uh, the letters of Paul, you know, like the other scriptures. And uh, not least, the authority that the apostles, and I'm thinking primarily of Paul here, the authority with which Paul relates to the churches, to the Christian churches. For example, in 2 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians 3.14, where Paul says, if anyone does not obey these instructions, you should mark that person and not even mix with them, that he may be ashamed. Now, you know, that's an interesting verse for a number of reasons, but, but the only thing that I'm concerned with here is Paul's sense that he has the authority to tell a church that if you do not obey the instructions that I am giving you, Anybody who doesn't ought to be marked and set, set aside as someone who is not um, subservient to the authority of Christ, obviously. Or again, in, in 1 Corinthians 14, 1 Corinthians 14, verses 37 to 39, uh, where Paul also shows that he expects the Corinthians to abide by his own instructions. Put all of that together, you see, and you have a conception of the New Testament, primarily through the work of the apostles, as uh, on, on a par with the Old Testament with regard to authority. And if anything, uh, I, don't, I hate to use the expression like a higher level or something, but certainly fulfillment and um, uh, being brought to us on the base of the authority of the Son who is superior than the angels and superior than Moses and superior than Aaron and, and the Old Testament uh, priesthood. So that biblical material, I think, needs to provide the framework against which we then understand what happens in, in the historical period of the early church. And it would be silly, you see, to look at those scattered comments in the first half of the second century without taking into account uh, this uh, theological conception of what uh, the New Testament revelation is all about. Any questions about the biblical material before we move on? Okay, let's move on then to this uh, next item, the criteria for canonicity, the criteria for canonicity. Yeah, it's coming up. Yeah, it's coming up. <coughs> Throughout the history of the church, people have been, um, understandably, interested in being able to formulate some criterion, some principle that will settle the question once and for all. Now, to anticipate the conclusions, um, you can't do that. 
And if you're hoping to gain assurance on the basis of some objective criterion like that, uh, I don't think you're going to reach it. There's a certain ambiguity. It's not an ambiguity in the data. It's, again, an ambiguity in, in our sinfulness and uh, finiteness and, and whatever. There's a certain ambiguity about the issue of, of canon which parallels the ambiguity that there is with regard to even to the, just to the truth of the Christian message or even to the existence of God. And, uh, you know, who hasn't felt frustrated sometimes in, in arguing with somebody who doesn't ag agree with you because you cannot go to the dictionary and say, see, it's spelled this way. And then that ends the discussion. Or go to the encyclopedia and you see, uh, such and such a person died on this date. See, I'm right. Um, and, and you cannot come up with that sort of thing when you're arguing with somebody about the existence of God or about the legitimacy of, of, of the Christian faith or about this notion that there is such a thing as a canon and the canon is closed. But people have tried. And so we have a number of these attempts, you see. First of all, the criterion of ecclesiastical authority. Ecclesiastical authority. Now, this is the principle that we saw was enunciated by the Council of Trent. In a sense, the uh, Roman Catholic Church came up with a black and white formula. An airtight, to their way of thinking, an airtight uh, principle. The church tells you what is the canon. Ecclesiastical authority. <coughs> and in a sense, it's true. If, uh, if the church tells you, and it can tell you, then that, that settles the issue. Only problem is that uh, you can accept that only by a surrendering of the principle of sola scriptura, so that by accepting the authority of the church on this question, you undermine the very thing that you're trying to save. Now it's no longer the, the, the Bible that has the ultimate authority, but a human institution. And by the way, even if you were willing to do that, uh, it's still not quite as airtight as we might want, because what do we do with the Syrian church for the rather long period in which uh, there was a disagreement? Uh, so it, I mean, it, it involves certain kinds of commitments that uh, do not uh, take into account every single little detail out there that might be brought into the discussion. However, uh, there's another way of looking at this whole thing. I think. And I suspect most of you, all of you, maybe, would reject this principle as the criterion. All right. But that is not to say that the factor of ecclesiastical authority is invalid in every respect. And this is a point that I, I really need to emphasize because most of us, I think, tend to um, uh, minimize the uh, principle of ecclesiastical authority perhaps a bit too much. Church authority with the proviso 
that um, church authority must always be exercised in full submission to scripture, with that proviso, that qualification, church authority is a biblical concept. We dare not dismiss lightly, uh, quote-unquote, what the church says, or, or to put it in a positive way, it is, it is right to be impressed with what the church universal has believed. It is right to be influenced by what the church universal has taught regarding the canon. You remember that little statement of Augustine when he says, in truth I should not have believed the gospel had the authority of the church Catholic not moved me to do so. Uh, Augustine was very self-conscious about that. Now he probably went a little bit too far on, on this sort of thing. But uh, in our day, we tend to uh, ignore or even reject that notion, and we don't realize that, as a matter of fact, what the church believes, uh, how the body of Christians moves believers in a certain direction, that is a factor that need not be uh, you know, laughed at, we may be quite conscious of it and, and, and rejoice in it. Doesn't mean that the church is always right. Doesn't mean that there's some kind of final authority to the church. But you see, God works through his people. And if, if you do believe in the very notion of the canon as that which has formed the church and that has instructed the church, then it is proper to look at scripture in, in the context of where the, church where, of where the scripture functions. And I don't want to say that uh, the, uh, the voice of the church with regard to the canon is something irrelevant or has no significance for my own thinking about these things. It does. But that's not to say that um, uh, church authority settles the question once and for all. It is, it is not in itself a sufficient criterion to decide the question. Second uh, criterion <clears throat> is what um, can be described as a widespread acceptance. See, there are some, in, in, this is almost like a variation on the first one, to, to be perfectly frank. Uh, there are some people who reject the concept of, um, of uh, church authority as such, but uh, they argue that here is the key, that what Christians uh, through a, uh, throughout the, the world, if you will, have acknowledged and recognized, that becomes the significant factor in making a decision about what is the canon. There's no doubt that this factor uh, played a very important role in the ancient church itself. In other words, as the decisions were being made, as the discussions proceeded with regard to the canon, a lot of attention was paid to whether a book was recognized only you know, in a corner of the uh, Roman Empire or whether it was recognized throughout uh, the, um, the geographical extension of the uh, then known world. But lots of questions, you see, come up if you make this the criterion. 
I mean, what constitutes enough geographical extent? And what precisely counts as acceptance? Is it uh, if, the, if, the, if the book happens to be read in the church? Or are we talking about some kind of formal decision by a region in the church? And they get you into, into problems because Hebrews, for example, um, for some interesting historical reasons, while it continued to be accepted uh, in the East, was suspect in the West for a rather extended period of time. Now, the West is a big area. And if you really push this criterion, uh, you get into trouble with uh, the Epistle to the Hebrews and possibly also with Second Peter. So you see, I think that this factor is impressive with regard to the bulk of the New Testament. And it's something that I tried to emphasize for you earlier. But uh, it is not so helpful when you get to the picky problems, you see. It doesn't really help you precisely where some of these debates uh, come up. So you don't want to ignore it. You want to recognize its uh, significance. But it will not serve you, again, as some sort of uh, determinative key. A third criterion is that of apostolicity. And very closely related to that, uh, the... Uh, principle of inspiration. Sometimes these two are treated separately. I think it, there may be some value in uh, uh, talking about them uh, together. The significance here is that apostolicity played uh, a very, very prominent role in the church's decisions back in the uh, third and fourth centuries. <coughs> you could even make a case that this was the determinant, the overriding factor. Uh, a, a book had to be apostolic. And some people will, will argue along these lines, hey, you can show historically that apostolicity was the, the factor that the church used to make its decision. Therefore, that must be the right factor. Well, it's not as simple as that. Uh, you see, that the fact that the church made the right decision cannot be equated with uh, the reasons were the right one every time. That the self-conscious reasons for a decision were necessarily perfect. <clears throat> what am I getting at? <clears throat> there are a number of... Uh, Christian doctrines, for example, that if you go back to the early church, uh, you look at some of the arguments used in, in, favor, in favor of the deity of Christ, and some of those arguments perhaps don't sound very conclusive to you at all, maybe even quite fallacious. And it is quite possible for you to acknowledge, yeah, this father in his particular defense of, of that doctrine, you know, was really stretching it. Uh, that doesn't mean that the doctrine he was defending was wrong. You have to distinguish a little bit between the reasons for something and the actual truth of, 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 of the doctrine. Now, again, you cannot separate these things, these things completely. Obviously, if every doctrine that the church decided upon was decided upon very flimsy grounds, that's a problem. 
Uh, that's all what I'm saying. And I'm not saying that apostolicity was a bad factor. All I'm saying is that you cannot simply say, ah, well, the church used apostolicity as the overriding factor, therefore that must be the argument in favor of the canon. Uh, th that doesn't follow necessarily. Part of the problem, of course, is that the application of this principle of apostolicity, the application of the principle, was a gradual thing. And as a matter of fact, before the third century, it cannot be shown that it was all that determinative, at least not as much as it was later in the fourth century. So even, even looking at this matter historically, there is some ambiguity there. Now, one of the uh, optional readings you have is uh, the book by Laird Harris, and um, he's one of the more strong, one of the stronger proponents of this uh, viewpoint. And, and he is right, by the way, again, in relating apostolicity and inspiration together. And, and that helps to uh, put things in a, in a better uh, perspective. But uh, still, you see, our questions are not totally solved. What do you do, for example, with um, when you're reading 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul makes a reference to, as I wrote you in my previous letter. And uh, everybody, uh, I think, just about everybody, acknowledges that Paul must have written a letter to the Corinthian church, which has not been preserved. And in this letter, he gave instructions to the church. Now, as an apostle, I think we have to say that that letter, you know, Paul wrote that under inspiration because he was writing under apostolic authority and giving instructions to the church. But that letter is not part of Scripture. What are you going to say? That the canon is not complete? Uh, that uh, through some kind of accident of history, we're missing part of the canon? I don't think you want to say that, and obviously Harris and, and many people wouldn't want to argue uh, that way. But you see the point that I'm making, that you do not have a, a complete correlation between uh, an apostolic statement, even you know, given under inspiration on the one hand, and a canonical writing. See, I go a lot further. This, is a, this matter is uh, somewhat debatable, but I myself would want to argue that whenever the apostles spoke in their apostolic capacity, authoritatively, they were speaking under inspiration, just as the prophets of old, when they spoke, you see, uh, word of God, thus says the Lord, they were orally doing this, and they were under inspiration. Inspiration is not totally correlative with canonicity. Everything that is canonical is inspired. But I am not so certain that everything that, that was inspired necessarily, quote-unquote, made it into the canon under God's... Uh, wisdom and, and providence. Not only so, uh, what do you do then with books like Mark and Luke written by people who were not apostles? Well, the church felt comfortable with that, arguing that apostolicity did not imply necessarily that a book had to be written directly by an apostle. But if it was written under, you see, by someone who was closely associated with an apostle and thus, in some sense, under apostolic supervision, 
then it also uh, counted. Well, some people say, well, that you're fudging there, fudging there a little bit, right? And what do you do with something like First Clement? Because Clement, who was a pastor in the church in Rome, knew the apostles. He makes reference to Peter and Paul. And Polycarp makes reference to John. So just the fact that there was some association, even a close association, does not automatically determine uh, that, that something is canonical. To say nothing about, what about our ignorance of books like Hebrews and, and possibly also James? We do not know who wrote Hebrews. We do not know uh, whether whoever wrote it was in close association with an apostle. You see what's happening here. Uh, if you really push this principle as the criterion, you're in effect subjecting canonicity to historical critical endeavors. Now, first you have to become a historical critic and be able to demonstrate historically that Mark was, was a disciple of Peter or whatever, or that the author of Hebrews may have been whoever, if not Paul, Apollos, or somebody who was in close association. You have to make these historical determinations, which are human and therefore fallible, before you can make a determination about the canon. So I don't think it's going to work. If, if you, again, if you're looking for one principle that's going to solve the problem. However, uh, neither do you want to minimize this, this factor of apostolicity. I mean, it would be a grievous mistake to set aside this factor altogether because it, I do believe that apostolicity and the way in which inspiration relates to apostolicity, that does lie at the root of what we have in mind when we speak about the canon. Still another criterion has to do with the content of the writings, the content of the writings. Now again, if you look at the historical process, <clears throat> it is very plain that when the churches started talking about the antilegomena, the antilegomena, um, those debates centered on uh, the matter of uh, universal acceptance. Oh, no, I mean, I didn't phrase that correctly. That the debate often centered on, okay, we have these books that we all acknowledge are canonical, the Gospels, the Epistles of Paul, and so on. Now we look at these others that are being debated, whether it be Second Peter or the Shepherd of Hermas or whatever, and, and the debate centered on whether the teaching of these books was in agreement with the teaching of what was recognized as canonical. A lot of the debate was of this character and therefore really focused on the content of, of these books. And then please understand how, um, how this particular issue relates uh, to the principle that I had meant that, that we spent quite a bit of time on, namely that the bulk of the New Testament was universally agreed on. And it was on the basis of that agreement that then some of these subsequent debates took place about whether certain books should or shouldn't be included. Only the influence of some original canon, 
you know, explains um, why, for example, the epistle of Barnabas was rejected. In other words, these final decisions conform to the very nature of the existing canon. Do you understand what I'm saying there? That when you're getting to those last stages uh, where you have these peripheral books and final decisions were being made, those final decisions conformed to the very nature of the existing canon. Uh, it was possible, you see, because of that uh, universal agreement as to what the canon basically was. If you appreciate that, you're not surprised that even Calvin, for example, will appeal to the content of the uh, biblical books. And uh, at one point he, uh, he mentions that he, he saw nothing in the epistle of James that was unworthy of the canon. <coughs> um, that is, nothing in James that would contradict the wisdom of the church in recognizing that book. And, and I don't want to minimize that. I, I don't want to, uh, to give the impression that this is a, um, uh, an irrelevant factor. But you see, that's not the problem here, whether any of these factors is valid in some sense. The, the question we're asking is, does any of these criteria, criteria qualify as determinative in itself? And if, if you try to do that with the content of, uh, of the books, then you end up with private subjective judgment. Okay, so Calvin didn't see anything wrong with James, but Luther did. And um, there are some people who, I mean, probably every Christian at one point or another comes across a statement of Scripture somewhere that, oh, brother, what is this? And, and your own subjective judgment may resist uh, something in Scripture, because you're not infinite and, and all-wise, you see. And uh, you, you cannot expect uh, individual judgment to be able to make a determination of that sort. The final uh, criterion that I want to um, bring before you here is the one of the testimony of the Holy Spirit. Um, in the mind of some people, this one is very closely connected to the previous one. Uh, I think that's, that's a wrong connection to make. And in fact, um, you see, someone like Theodor Zahn, that we've talked about before, a, uh, who was Lutheran and who didn't have very many good things to say about Reformed theology, Zahn uh, would take any arguments about the testimony of the Holy Spirit as a totally subjective kind of thing and that would be very critical of that. And sure enough, if you're thinking of the testimony of the witness of the Spirit uh, as the basis for canonicity, then you're in trouble. Oh, I sense that the Spirit is telling me this or the other. That's not my basis for deciding what is and what is not canonical. But, uh, you see, the real problem there is that I think it implies reflects a misunderstanding of the, of the, at least a reformed understanding of the witness of the Spirit. Uh, again, to repeat what we had looked at before, you must not think of the witness of the Spirit as the conveying of information. That's not what we're dealing with. It may be better to note uh, 
that the principal aspect here is that of sonship. You know, when the uh, scriptures speak about uh, the Spirit, particularly in Romans chapter three, 4, uh, sorry, Galatians 4, uh, verses uh, 4 through 7, and also in Romans 8, you have the, the same concept where Paul speaks about uh, God sending the Spirit of His Son to our hearts. Well, see, now if we have the Spirit of the Son of God, then we can also view ourselves as sons of God, and we can call God Father. And uh, the, um, the Spirit bears witness of this. It is not so much a communication of information, you see, but rather uh, that movement of the Spirit that is encouraging because it, it confirms where we stand and who we are and the, the naturalness with which a believer will call God Father is, uh, is the work of the Spirit. But you see, you don't know who the Father is unless you can understand His words. You hear His words and you know that they're from Him. You know, think of John chapter 10 where Jesus makes uh, similar remarks. And, um, and so it's not that new information is given, but that there is a subjective assurance that we may call God Father and that leads us to recognize in Scripture the Father's words. And so, you see, the witness of the Spirit may be viewed as the means, not the basis on which, but, but the means whereby assurance is given to believers. The basis is, is Scripture itself, but the Spirit is the means whereby that assurance uh, comes to us. Now, let me just uh, conclude this section by... Um, <coughs> trying to emphasize that the church really has not been successful in isolating, in isolating any one factor that establishes canonicity. Indeed, the church cannot establish any such criterion because if we were able to do this, we would thereby weaken the very principle of scriptural authority. See, if, if you were able to, to demonstrate that, say, apostolicity is the criterion, then you've got to use historical criticism to make sure that every book of the New Testament was written by an apostle or a close associate, and therefore uh, you're subjecting canon to our own... Um, rational abilities and thus to a relativism so that you end up with this idea of a canon within the canon. Now what happens is that your real canon is your ability to, to make historical determinations. That's your final authority. Uh, Dr. Gaffin uh, used to put it, and he does, he has something along these lines also in the article that you're supposed to read uh, by him, the attempt to establish some criteria is really an attempt, it's really a rationalizing, if you will, a generalizing upon a phenomenon that is unique. You see, when you apply historical criticism to anything, what you're really doing is you are really trying 
to, um, to evaluate an event or a particular uh, historical entity or factor within the context of history generally. I mean, that's the only way we can operate, but by generalizations of that sort. But if canon is a unique phenomenon, and now you try to generalize on it or rationalize on it, you're destroying the very uniqueness of the thing that you're looking at. Or to put it differently, we are in effect shut up to the canon as a self-establishing entity. We're shut up to the canon as a self-establishing entity. By definition, by definition, if you can go outside of the canon or behind the canon or whatever, above the canon, to establish the authority of the canon, then you have abandoned the canon as your ultimate authority. You have made something else that final authority. And that something else, inevitably, is going to be subject to the autonomous reason of human beings. Now, when you make comments like that, unfortunately, it sounds to people like irrationality. But that's not what we're talking about. That's not really what's going on here. You see, all of these factors that we've been talking about, these criteria of canonicity, are real. They are valid. And in their totality, they are compelling. What, what I'm trying to avoid is suggesting that any one of them individually, or even all of them collectively, have the power to establish the ultimate authority that is inherent to, to canonicity. But please don't make the mistake of treating those criteria as though they were irrelevant or they had no value. Not at all. I mean, again, I think it's useful to see some analogy between this and things like the existence of God. I think we can acknowledge that you cannot come up with any proof for the existence of God that, it, that has some final validity to it or that it will by itself uh, convince an unbeliever. Uh, but that doesn't mean that we do not recognize the evidences for the existence of God. And when we speak about the heavens declare you know, who God is and his, his marvels, we're talking about evidence. We're, what really saying is that our um, faith in the existence of God does not, is not um, incoherent with the reality that we live in. Oh, of course, there are times in our lives when we have experiences or, or there are factors that, that uh, may raise doubts and you're not too sure how you can put everything together. But you see, if the whole of your experience uh, were contradictory rather than reaffirming of the truth of Scripture, then you'd have a problem. And then you would be saying that there's something irrational about your faith. And similarly, I would want to argue that the very historical process that we've been looking at 
and that these factors, which are very difficult, if not impossible, to explain outside of God's providential workings in his church, are consonant with our understanding of canon. They may not prove it. They may not be uh, you know, sufficient criteria to establish it. But they fit in. And therefore, it isn't as though we're sacrificing our intellect and refusing to look at the evidence. But ultimately, uh, we have to take into account the canon for what it is. If, if indeed there's a, this personal element to canon, you know, God is canon, as Dr. Gaffin likes to put it. Uh, where can you go beyond God, you see, to prove who God is and, and what his word is like? Uh, no, but that's our next point. The notion of authority and, and the closed canon, all this. We'll try to address that a little bit. Um, there, there are no easy answers to that kind of thing. And, uh, of course, it's a big if, and um, to put it mildly. And I, I you know, I, I don't think it makes much sense to, um, to worry too much about what we're going to do about something that is almost certain not to happen. Uh, you know, you can say, we'll cross that bridge when we get to it. Now, of course, theoretically, I understand that there's a significant factor there. But, uh, well, we'll, we'll come back to that, that question a little bit. Any other questions about the criteria for canonicity? Yeah. That, in effect, if, if you do come to the position where you think that you have some criterion that establishes canonicity. In effect, you are adopting a different canon. It may be a canon within the canon in the sense that it is a portion of scripture that is your ultimate authority, or it may be kind of outside the canon, historical criticism, whatever. But uh, uh, in any case, you, you're modifying what do you mean by canon? Exactly, exactly, yeah. Other questions on canonicity, yeah. Um, well, you know, I, I think I will be addressing that question when we talk about the notion of authority. I mean, I'm not going to give you any, uh, and I'm, I'm a little bit concerned that I'm, I won't be able to get to it today. Please don't come to the uh, session tomorrow thinking, ah, now we're going to get this uh, Total answer, um, but uh, it, it is part of the of, of the larger complex uh, that, that I'll try to uh, to address tomorrow. Yeah. Well, you you it, it's not that God is communicating a piece of information that is not in the Bible, but it is simply the Spirit helping us to acknowledge the truth of Scripture, because now He makes us aware of who we are. So, sure, although I, at this point I was thinking more of you know, each individual in a sense. That is a factor that has to be taken into account, even though, again, it is not an all-conclusive kind of uh, principle. All right, um, tomorrow I should be able to, um, to go through this matter in about 15, 20 minutes and finish the outline. So uh, if you have a chance to do a little bit of re reviewing in terms of the final exam, and there are some other parts of the course, 
that, um, that if you need to ask questions about or the exam that's in the circulation desk, we'll, I hope to have at least 15, 20 minutes tomorrow to answer those questions.